During the Pete Carroll, John Schneider era, the Seahawks unfortunately have had major struggles building a consistent offensive line, and that reputation seems to be carrying over with some of the first rankings for the 2023 season. Is the Seahawks offensive line being overlooked going into a new year? Rob Rang and I are going to discuss and debate on our Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks, as always, to all the 12s out there. Whether you're listening in British Columbia or south of the border, you're listening from somewhere in Mexico. We greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We're in the middle of the offseason now, the dead zone. We're getting started here. We had six weeks roughly until training camp, but we've got plenty to break down, including the state of the offensive line going into the 2023 season. What's next for Ken Walker the third, and continuing our 90-player countdown with numbers 80 through 76. Jam-packed episode coming your way, so let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on our Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. Over the past decade or so, the Seahawks have consistently had one of the weaker offensive lines in football. Even though they've had a lot of success winning football games, they've won a Super Bowl, a bunch of division championships. Even when Russell Wilson was playing at his very best, there were always questions about that offensive line. And Rob, they've had issues with continuity. They've had problems with trying to put one-year deal players into the starting lineup, guys that were 30 or older trying to throw them into the lineup and trying to make things work. And that strategy has not led to much success, particularly at the tackle positions. They've been playing musical chairs at center since Max Unger left. And so it's easy to see with that reputation why the Seahawks going into the 2023 season would be getting low marks in terms of where they stand in the rankings. Pro Football Focus releasing their offensive line rankings for the 2023 season. And not a surprise after the Seahawks were ranked dead last last year. I guess we can say it's an improvement. They're ranked 30th on this latest set of rankings. And reading the article, you could see that there were still some concern about what's next for Abe Lucas and Charles Cross. And then all the question marks in the interior offensive line. And so that lends a question. Is the Seahawks offensive line being overlooked? Or is this a more accurate representation of what the Seahawks have going into this season, at least based on past precedent? Well, in my opinion, Seattle's offensive line is completely being overlooked. I think that they were often overlooked during the Russell Wilson era as well. Seattle never finished dead last in the NFL in sacks allowed. The Denver Broncos did this past season with Russell Wilson, uh, you know, at the quarterback position. Um, you know, you, you look at the Seattle's metrics in terms of the sacks allowed, the the passing yardage that they put up, the passing touchdowns that they put up, the rushing yards average, the the rushing touchdowns that the Seahawks produced. You know, in, in every single statistic, Corbin, the Seahawks are far from last or far from thirtieth in the NFL. So yes, a very 
simple response to your question. I do think that the Seahawks offensive line is being kind of criminally underrated. And I am acknowledging the fact that Seattle had the two rookie offensive tackles a year ago. And anybody who is watching on YouTube, thank you as always to our viewers and to our listeners. If you're watching on YouTube right now, then you can see the statistics that Pro Football Focus provided as well as ESPN provided. And if you look at the individual grades that those two different analytical websites provided, then I think you can make an argument of why that these two websites, again, PFF and ESPN are ranking Seattle's offensive line as poorly as they are because they're looking at all of the individual players. But as a former offensive lineman myself, and you, of course, as a former running back, you understand that an offensive line is much more than its individual parts. It's about what the group does together. And I do believe that Seattle's offensive line was a surprising strength a year ago, certainly not dead last in the NFL. And I think that it is one of the reasons why the Seattle should be optimistic about this upcoming season as well. So this is where I stand on this. I do not think that the Seahawks are the 30th best offensive line in the NFL. So from that perspective, you could say that people are sleeping on them a little bit. But I don't know that I would rank them that much higher than that going into the season. Now, do I think they could end up being a top 15, maybe even top 10 offensive line? That's the caveat here. I think the potential, we talked about this some yesterday. I think the potential is there for this offensive line to be a very good one, especially if Abraham Lucas and Charles Cross make big jumps in their sophomore seasons. You get an upgrade at center, whether that's Evan Brown or rookie Olu Oluwatimi. And if Phil Haynes or Anthony Bradford comes in and does a solid job at right guard, I mean, Damian Lewis was probably their most consistent player last year, and now he's their elder statesman on this offensive line. So you like him at the left guard spot. It feels like this group could be really good, but – those numbers, I'll put them up again for our YouTube viewers. You can see from that individual perspective, and you're right, Rob, this is a group effort when we're talking about offensive linemen. But at the same time, this chart is littered with red, meaning that either in the ESPN rankings, the player was outside the top 10, wasn't even ranked, at least what's available to the public, or in PFF grades, that means you were 33rd or worse. So you weren't one of the top 32 players in terms of grades at your position. Again, we've talked about this before. PFF grades, those are not the gospel. There's been plenty of times where guys have gotten low grades, and I've been shaking my head a little bit like, why? I watch the film. I feel like this player is much better than they're representing. But again, there's subjectivity to all these grades. When you have that many, though, that are that far down on the list, and we saw inconsistency as expected from the two rookie tackles last year. We saw inconsistency at center. Austin Blythe really struggled the second half of the season and was getting bullied. So this was an offensive line that had some issues last year. I think they were better than people expected. I think they're going to be a lot better than 30th. But there's a lot of projecting that's going on here because there isn't much to work off of in terms of experience. I mean, you could have three or four guys in this lineup, Rob, that have one or fewer years of experience. If Evan Brown and Phil Haynes are your starters – Brown's got more than 20 starts, so he's a seasoned veteran compared to most of the guys on this offensive line. But Phil Haynes has started five games in four seasons, so it's not like he's an experienced starter either. So we kind of hit on this a little bit yesterday, but I can understand this team being ranked fairly low just because of the numbers they posted last year, pressures, things of that nature, and just the general uncertainty. If this was a ranking based on potential, I would think Seattle should be much higher than that. 
with the draft capital they put in and, and the two guys, young guys that got the two rookies that I think have a chance to play at some point this year at center and right guard. But again, this is projection based. And if we're just basing this off of what we know at this point, we don't know what those incoming rookies are going to do. We don't know what Evan Brown's going to do as a full-time starter if he wins that job. We don't know what Phil Haynes is going to do. We don't know what year two looks like for the tackles. So there's a lot of projection in this. And I think that's why it's that low. I I don't necessarily agree with it being that low, but I can understand why they would be in the bottom third just based on that premise. Yeah, I, I can understand why they'd be in the bottom third. And I live in the world of projections, of course, uh, as a as a scout. Um, but, you know, and, and and I was skeptical uh, about Seattle's chances a year ago. I mean, remember, I was the guy that said that I thought the Seahawks were going to finish 6-11 and 11 and far out of the playoffs a year ago. And I think a huge reason why they had the success that they had, as we talked about so many times, obviously Geno Smith, but again, those two rookie offensive tackles. And so maybe it's because Charles Cross and Abe Lucas had Again, the collective seasons that they had. If you want to nitpick each of those players individually, sure, they, they had their issues. But the fact that the Seahawks finished 10th in passing yards a year ago, 6th in passing touchdowns a year ago, you know, they finished 24th in sacks allowed, which is obviously a much more disturbing number, but still. Geno Smith's in relative starting inexperience, I think, also had something to do with that. The fact that three of the NFC West opponents, the Los Angeles Rams, the, obviously the Super Bowl defending champions at that point, the Arizona Cardinals and the CX all finished among the 10 worst teams in terms of sacks allowed. Maybe that dominant San Francisco 49ers defensive line and some guy named Aaron Donald had something to do with the NFC West being a little bit lower in terms of sacks allowed categories. So it's just my theory on that. And then if you want to switch to the running ball, running the football, you know, Seattle finished 26th in the NFL a year ago with only 12 rushing touchdowns. Again, I would argue that might be a reason why Zach Charbonnet was selected as early as he was in the second round by the Seahawks, much to the chagrin by a bunch of the naysayers out there, including a couple of PFF and ESPN rankers out there. Hashtag sarcasm here. Seattle finished 18th in the NFL in rushing yards, rushing yards a year ago. They finished fifth in all of the NFL and yards per attempt at 4.8 yards. So how all of that contributes to Seattle being ranked 30th in the NFL and the offensive line at this point, presuming that you are going to see some improvement from those two rookie offensive tackles and that you are going to have a player, whether it be Evan Brown or whether it be Oluwatimi, the rookie, that should be able to give you at least what you saw a year ago at the center position. So again, Corbin, I, I definitely have a great deal of respect for PFF and ESPN and all the other analysts out there. But I, as again, as a former offensive line player in my Myself, recognizing just the fact that it is a unit, not individual talent. And again, as the scout that is very much going to be looking at the traits and projecting what they can do based on not only their individual talent, but what Andy Dickerson demonstrated a year ago as Seattle's offensive line coach, I feel very, very confident that Seattle's offensive line is going to wind up ranking what's all said and done a heck of a lot higher than 30th in the NFL. When we come back, we're going to talk about one of the players that's going to be running behind this much maligned offensive line, and that's Ken Walker III, who finished second in Offensive Rookie of the Year balloting. What can he do for a big encore in his second season? We'll be revisiting his dynamic rookie year and taking a look at some areas of improvement coming up next year on our Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. 
This episode is brought your way by FanDuel. The NFL season is quickly approaching, so make a sprint over to FanDuel because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. And then you can bet on everything from season awards to week one props to exact regular season totals. Even with training camp still more than a month away, I'm excited to dig into things like Defensive Player of the Year, Rookie of the Year on both sides of the ball, and much more. Regardless of what prop you choose, you'll get paid instantly if you win. There's no better place to bet on all the upcoming football action than America's number one sports book. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NFL. You're listening to an early Thursday edition of the Locked on Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. For our everydayers out there, we're going to be playing a little bit of this or that on Blue Friday, looking at some statistical oddities, which one has a better chance to happen for the Seahawks this upcoming season. And we will be continuing our 90-man roster countdown on Blue Friday. You won't want to miss it. Make sure that you are listening in. Continuing our second-year leap series. To this point, we looked at Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas, two players that we just talked about extensively in the first quarter, looking at this offensive line. And in Boye Mafe last week, Dallas Cooper and I broke down his previous season, what might be next. Now we're going to go to one of those dynamic players that Finished in the top three in rookie of the year balloting, finished second just behind Jets receiver Garrett Wilson. He's still not very happy about not winning that award. And there's plenty of people out there that think that he should have won that award with over a thousand rushing yards. Ken Walker the third turned in a dominant rookie season. There were a few hiccups here and there in there, but not a lot of that falls on his shoulders with the offensive line being inconsistent. Some of the other issues, they were battling some injuries in the middle of that offensive line in the second half of the season as well. Any way you slice it, though, Rob, for a first-year player coming in, he made that second-round selection look brilliant for the Seahawks once he took over for an injury Rashad Penny in Week 5. Well, and that's what I love that you just mentioned, is that he did take over for injured Rashad Penny in Week 5. And that's where I would start off this conversation is, let's just kind of go back in time a little bit and look at what uh, that Kenneth Walker was able to do the first couple of weeks of the season and what he was able to do the last couple of weeks of the season when, again, Seattle was making that transition to Ken Walker III being Seattle's primary running back rather than being kind of that complementary back to Rashad Penny. Um, Over the first couple of weeks of the season against Denver, Ken Walker III didn't have a single carry. In week two, he had four against San Francisco. In week three against the Atlanta Falcons, he had three. In in, uh, week four against Detroit, he had eight. Uh, eight rushes. None of these were for over 29 total yards in any of those games. His very first touchdown came against uh, on the road against the New Orleans Saints. He broke free for a long touchdown. He wound up having eight carries for 88 yards. And again, his very first NFL touchdown. And then he went on one heck of a run as the you know Seattle's starter. That that week six game against uh, week six is against New York, uh, the Arizona Cardinals was when he got his very first opportunity as Seattle's primary ball carrier. 21 rushes for 97 yards and a touchdown. He had a touchdown in the next three consecutive games after that point. If you go down to the very end of the season, as I mentioned before, in week one, didn't have a single carry. 
in week 17, a victory over the Los Angeles Rams. He literally carried the Seahawks 29 carries, career high, 114 yards. Uh, you know, he was the, the primary ball carrier for Seattle as the season got going, as they wound up, uh, you know, earning that playoff spot. He was the rightful owner of the Offensive Rookie of the Year. Any other argument is kind of comical if you watch the entire season from where a player started to ascend and how he continued to ascend rather than what he did primarily on a few uh you know big time uh prime time tv kind of opportunities as well as some of the other winners of the awards last year did so Again, Corbin, I think that what Kenneth Walker III was able to do for the Seahawks a year ago was very little short of remarkable. Right there, along with Geno Smith, right there, along with those offensive tackles and what they were able to do as rookies, what Tariq Woolen was able to do as a rookie last year, the reason why the Seahawks are as optimistic as they are has a lot to do with number nine. Looking back at his rookie season, the couple things that immediately stood out to me that showed that this kid had all pro talent, that there was a special back that had been brought in to eventually replace Rashad Penny, whether it was because of injury or him leaving in free agency, this was the guy that was being pegged as their next workhorse. And the two things that really jumped up or jumped out, the first thing is the explosiveness and the suddenness that this kid plays with. And it's reflected in the breakaway rate. And this is how PFF ends up putting the statistic together. It's designed runs that go for 15 plus yards. There wasn't a qualified running back on the top 32 in the league last year that had a higher percentage. 45.8% of Ken Walker's runs checked off that box, 15 plus yards. That, that's insane. We're not talking far off from 50%. So Rashad Penny's been known for his ability to hit home runs, but Ken Walker III, they didn't miss a beat when he came into the lineup because his suddenness, his ability to turn on the afterburners and then take off, outrun linebackers, corner safeties, and hit home runs. He had a bunch of really long runs, that long touchdown against the Saints. He had a really long one that put the knife in the Chargers on the road a few weeks later. We saw that dynamic athleticism all year round. And I think the other thing that's worth noting the ability to make nothing or something out of nothing. How many times do we see Ken Walker the third get ambushed in the backfield and turn a four-yard loss into a three- or four-yard gain? Those are as impressive of runs as you're going to find in the NFL. And a lot of times your guys that average 4.5 or more yards per carry that are regular workhorses, they excel at that because NFL defenders are going to get in the backfield. Can you find ways to eliminate those negative plays and get – at least back to the line of scrimmage or get some positive yards out of it. Because if you can do that, it really helps your individual stats and it keeps your team at least fairly on schedule. And I thought that Ken Walker III, most of the time, did a really solid job with that. And he broke a lot of tackles, finished in the top 12 in missed tackles forced, and he didn't start until week six. And so I think that's really the thing worth noting here. He was in the top 10 to top 12 in almost every meaningful rushing category and he wasn't really the workhorse until week six of the season. And he missed a game later in the year as well. So he didn't maybe get quite as many starts. And that gives you some reason to be really excited. What can this guy do with an entire season as the starter? But of course, there are areas for any player to improve, especially coming out of the rookie year. And I would like to, from a running perspective, and this is the running back, the running back coach coming out of me. I love runners that can ex exhibit patience, but in the NFL, your windows, your creases to run through open and close in a blink of an eye. 
And there is such a thing as being too patient. And I knocked Ken Walker the third on this last year when the Seahawks had a lull, four or five games. They didn't win very many of those games in the early part of the second half of the season. They couldn't run the ball then. Some of it's on the offensive line, but you go back and watch the film, and there were yards to get there that Ken Walker the third was not taking because he was trying too hard to hit that home run and being too patient. I want to see more decisiveness. I thought he did a better job the last three or four games, including the wild card round against the 49ers of running with more conviction and being decisive rather than getting caught behind the backfield. He's got those great abilities to make guys miss and turn nothing into something, but there were some negative plays that could have been avoided if he would have just got his foot, his, uh, the cleat in the turf and just got downhill and pick up the yards in front of him. That's where I want to see him grow the most going into his second season. Yeah, I agree with you. I want to see a little bit more decisiveness, a little bit more initial burst. Um, I think that that is one thing that he can help himself. The fact that, uh, you know, really since the, the weekend of Thanksgiving, that November 27th game um, against the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, that was the last time that he scored a touchdown in the regular season. He did get a score late against the San Francisco, or excuse me, early against the San Francisco 49ers in the playoff loss. But, you know, there were five games at the end of the regular season and when Kenneth Walker the third was was held out of the end zone so that 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 finishing downhill that type of mentality is something that I think that he could improve on um as dynamic as he was I really think that nine rushing touchdowns really didn't reflect how dynamic that he was he had a stretch there Corbin I mean we've talked about this I mean he was as as dynamic as any running back in all of the NFL it felt like for a while there that he was literally running away with the offensive rookie of the year award. Um, and, and so that would be an area in which I think that he can improve is to kind of get what you can get when you can get it at times. I do think that that is one of the reasons why Seattle made it, the investment in Zach Charbonnet as well as Kenny McIntosh um, is to try to provide a little bit more of that finishing uh, power uh, especially in the form of Charbonnet to kind of you know round out Seattle's running game. But I, I will say this, and, and you mentioned this as well. Um, to me, one of the ways in which I try to evaluate running backs is, and it sounds simple, but can you make the defender miss? You know, a, a dynamic running back, an NFL caliber running back has to be able to make at least one defender miss. The offensive line has to be able to do their job, of course. But can you make that very first guy miss? And more times than not, Kenneth Walker did exactly that. And what I was most excited about is the vision, is the bounce off of contact, is the burst, is the spinning ability. The, the point I'm trying to make here is he did it in virtually every single way in which it can be done. So again, that, that's why I'm so excited about Kenneth Walker III. The fact that he did it in two different college systems, comes in the NFL, has the success that he had immediately, especially with that horrid offensive line that he had to deal with, that terrible overrated quarterback that he had to deal with, and yet he still had that production. Again, that's one of the reasons why I really think that the future is very, very bright for Kenneth Walker in Seattle and in the NFL just in, in general. Hopefully our listeners have their sarcasm ears on for that previous statement. Anyway, you are listening to the Thursday edition of the Locked on Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined as always by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. A special thanks 
to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And for every dayers, you won't want to miss tomorrow's Blue Friday episode. We're going to play a little this or that, some statistical oddities, which ones have a better chance of happening for the Seahawks during the 2023 season. And we'll continue our 90-man roster countdown. Speaking of the 90-man roster countdown, it's time for numbers 80 through 76. And some of our listeners are going to think that they are listening to Locked On Montana or Locked On Montana State because yesterday we talked about Ty Okada, the safety from Montana State. We're going to continue our very next player in the countdown with, I know one of the undrafted rookies that you are really excited about, heralding from Montana, the other school in big country, and that's Patrick O'Connell, the ever-productive linebacker for the Grizzlies. Yeah, I was going to say, Corbin, you got to be careful not calling Montana the other school there. I mean, the Grizzlies have had an awful lot of success, but no, I, I think that's an ex- excellent point. I mean, just because Ty Okada from Montana State, as we talked about yesterday, is a really exciting, or two days ago, excuse me, we talked about as a really exciting safety player. Patrick McConnell is, is a fascinating defensive player as well for the Montana Grizzlies. Uh, at, when he left Montana, he was one of the most productive edge rushers in Montana's history. And again, it's a storied history. History. Uh, you know, what's interesting about him is that he's basically 6'1, 230 pounds. And, and he did play some edge rusher. He was asked to uh to, to blitz an awful lot. His his fit in the NFL is going to be more at that inside linebacker position rather than being as a an upfield rusher. Uh, but still. The, the athletic ability that he demonstrated in his pro day, uh, he was not invited to the combine. He showed some explosiveness in the drills. He showed some excellent change of direction, short shuttle, three-cone drills, things like that. Uh, and just the... You know, the ability to get skinny through gaps, his uh, awareness, a defender of, of would-be blockers around him, uh, his instincts. Uh, when he was asked to drop back into coverage, had a couple of interceptions, and not only picked the ball off, but then showed some vision and some running ability after the catch as well. All of those are factors that I really think could make Patrick O'Connell absolutely one of Seattle's undrafted rookies this year that the Seahawks fans should very much be paying attention to. And Montana has had some really good NFL talent come out of that school. And he finished his college career fourth all-time in tackles for loss and sixth all-time in sacks. So you want to talk about a guy that's in some pretty exclusive company with several players that end up having solid NFL careers as well. This is a guy that's got a chance to maybe make some waves. Now, I think it's going to be easier to do that at linebacker than corner, but we're going to go from one of the top FCS programs to one of the top emerging Division I FBS programs that actually is only two years removed from a playoff appearance and a guy that played in the postseason, the playoff round for the Cincinnati Bearcats, and that's Arquan Bush, who was in a secondary where he was overlooked. You had a future top five pick in Sauce Gardner. You had a future fourth round pick for the Seahawks and Kobe Bryant. But Arquan Bush is a player that put up some really good numbers in his college career at Cincinnati. He's got decent size, over six foot, almost 200 pounds, nine career interceptions, almost 20 pass breakups in his career. So this guy knows how to get his hands on the football. Have there been some big plays surrendered downfield? Absolutely. That would be the biggest detriment to him is that he doesn't necessarily have elite athletic traits and teams have been able to take advantage of him with the vertical passing game sometimes, but he can come up and tackle. He's played slot. That's where he was at when Sauce Gardner and Kobe Bryant were on the outside. He played some extensive snaps 
in the nickel as a fairly big bodied corner was able to do that for the Bearcats. And so in this position group, as we've talked about with all the starting talents the Hawks have, it's going to be very difficult for any of these undrafted corners to be able to make this football team. But at the same time, if Bush can make some plays on special teams, I think he can solidify his standing as a guy that can play in the practice squad this year, be a call up candidate to play on special teams when needed and maybe a year down the road or two years down the road might still be a guy that's worth developing that could help replace one of these guys when they are filtered out of Seattle so I think certainly an intriguing player to watch now it wouldn't be a fun episode without talking about long snappers and the Seahawks only have one on the roster and he's an undrafted rookie and I know that you and I have been chomping the bit to get to Chris Stahl, who was actually the Patrick Manley Award winner last year, which goes to the nation's top long snapper. Part of me has always wondered, how do you pick the top long snapper? But they do it every year, and this guy has been a beacon of consistency at Penn State. He absolutely has. Uh, you know, th- this shows just the sickness that I have uh, when it comes to the NFL draft coverage. Uh, you know, when when you and I were talking uh, on day three, and I, I was lucky enough to you know join the guys at um, you know KGR Sports Radio ninety three point three during the, the draft coverage. Um, I, I kind of put together my own day three board and, and I'm very proud to say that some of those players wound up being Seahawks. Uh, you know, we talk so much about Cameron Young and, uh, you know, uh, Anthony Bradford and guys like that heading into the draft and lo and behold, they wound up being Seahawks. There, there were three long snappers that I really thought fit in with the Seahawks very well. Chris Stoll from Penn State, obviously that's who wound up going with the Seahawks. Matt Hembro from Oklahoma State, Alex Ward from University of Central Florida. Stoll, as you mentioned, was the long snapper of the year a year ago. He also was the biggest of the bunch, a 6'3", 255 pounds. The other guys were kind of in that 6'3", 230 pounds, 6'2", 220 pounds kind of, of frames. And not, not really ideal for the NFL, but they also, like Stoll, just consistently fired off very, very accurate, very, very quick snaps. And, and that's obviously what it takes. And, and the Seahawks had pretty good play at the snapper position each of the last several years. But the fact that they entered the draft with no long snappers on their roster, then it was pretty clear that they were going to be targeting one of those players. I I was surprised, frankly, that they wound up waiting until undrafted free agent to get one of these players just because that is a risk. But at the same time, I do believe that they got the best of them. I, I Honestly, I'm surprised that we're talking about Crystal at this point because I think unless we see any type of huge mistakes from him, uh, I, I read the article that you wrote here just recently on SI uh, about what Crystal could be, and I think I'm uh, basically quoting you here by saying it's kind of his job to lose in the argument. I mean, unless Kobe Parkinson's going to take it from him, I mean, who's, <laughs> who's going to be your long snapper? They don't have anybody else on the roster. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think you can make an argument that he should be ranked in our, you know, 53rd or 54th at this point. Certainly think that is justified to be talking about him here because I think that he is somebody that, the, you know, a lot of Seahawks fans out there are not getting used to the name Crystal, but they should be because he very well may end up may wind up being a starter for the Seahawks this upcoming season as yet again, another undrafted free agent who cracks the starting lineup. Coming in at number 77 in our rankings, this is a name for our diehard everydayers that you're going to be familiar with because Dan Viennes of the Seahawks Forever podcast yesterday mentioned him as one of his 
dark sleepers to make the 53-man roster, and that's MJ Anderson coming out of Iowa State. He started his college career at Minnesota, didn't play very many snaps for the Golden Gophers in two years, finally got extensive playing time, was overshadowed by Will McDonald on the outside, but this is a guy that had a pretty good season for the Cyclones, 37 tackles, three and a half sacks, 19 pressures, had nine tackles for loss. And I think the things that intrigue me about him, it's pretty similar to what Dan posted or pointed out yesterday, that this is a guy that's 273 pounds. He plays with some physicality. I think he could probably be 285, 290 pounds and be fine. He's got average athleticism, but I think for a three-tech, he has more than enough juice. You can see it on the tape. And there were some glimpses of pass rushing ability last year. He has not played very much football. And so I think that means there's a high ceiling here. The Seahawks clearly viewed that by giving him the largest signing bonus of any of their undrafted rookies, too. They clearly see something in him. And with the depth concerns at that three-tech position, the defensive line in general, I could see MJ Anderson being a player that ends up being a potential threat to getting a roster spot if he is productive and he's disruptive during training camp in the preseason and at minimum, a guy that's on the practice squad that you can develop that maybe goes Miles Adams route where he ends up being a key rotational player a year or two into the future. So I think that MJ Anderson is a fun player to watch. And I know that this last guy wrapping up this countdown, I know we both want to talk about him. He was a player that Thor Nystrom on our show was raving about. Noah Gindorf, the tight end from North Dakota State. There have been injuries. That's really held him back. I think if he was healthy the last two years, that he is drafted at some point on day three, but the Seahawks get him as an undrafted free agent with back-to-back seasons ended by ankle injuries. If he's healthy, which everything I'm hearing is that he is, he's fully recovered now, this is a guy that is really intriguing as a future contributor at the tight end position. Yeah, he absolutely is. Now, you know, again, I think you're going to talk about Gendorf. He is entering a position of tight end that we've talked about, Corbin, is, you know, arguably Seattle's deepest position. It's the reason why, as we talked about a moment ago with the cornerback from Cincinnati, Arquan Bush, despite the fact that he has the 36 career starts, despite the fact that he has nine career interceptions, despite the fact that he has starting experience at both outside and nickel, corner is just so darn deep for the Seahawks. It's going to be difficult for him to make this roster. Same thing here, I think, for Noah Gindorf, as much as I like him. And I, I love the fact that you mentioned this the ankle injuries. I mean, he came back a year ago. He, he should have been eligible for the 2022 NFL draft, but an ankle injury kind of screwed that up. He comes back in 2023, an ankle injury screws that up. And this last year, of course, was one of the great tight end classes that we've ever seen. And, and so he falls out of, the, out of the ranking. He reminds me a little bit of Will Disley in that the the talk is at this point at least is that he is more of a blocker than he is a pass catcher but you go back on tape and you see some soft hands you see the ability to pluck the football I do still absolutely believe that he is at his best at the line of scrimmage in fact I think that there's a possibility at 6-6 you might be able to pack enough weight on him to make him into one of those George Fant type of you know former tight end becoming an offensive tackle candidate so again th- there are some elements to him that I still feel like are has some kind of untapped potential to him, some positional versatility. I think it's going to be very intriguing. You mentioned before, MJ Anderson, same kind of thing. Again, the size, the athletic ability. It's just with MJ Anderson, the defensive line, 
as you mentioned, that is a huge area of concern for the Seahawks. It's a little bit easier road to possibly make this roster just because Seattle has some questions at that spot. Noah Gindorf, in my opinion, is the better player. At the same time, I think the MJ Anderson has a better chance of making this roster. So I, again, the two undrafted free agents that I am fascinated by, the Thor Nystrom, as you said before, who, who basically just lauded Seattle's undrafted free agent class so that it was easily the best in the NFL. Um, I, I think that this these couple of players that we've mentioned in today's show are, are some of the reasons to justify Thor's uh, you know lofty praise. And I view Gindorf as kind of one of those contributors in waiting type players because mm -hmm. we talked about it yesterday or on Tuesday's show that the Seahawks have two free agents pending at tight end after this year in Parkinson and Noah Fant. And they also have Will Disley going to the final year, his contract, and he's had injuries, more than $10 million cap hit. So there may be some questions about his future after this year too. So it might look really stable right now, but long-term – you're, pop, you're probably going to need at least one new guy in that group. So maybe Noah Gindorf can have a redshirt season to fully make sure he's all the way back from that ankle injury. And at 6'6", over 260 pounds, you know he can block because he played at North Dakota State. You wouldn't have seen the field. If you're a tight end and you can't block for that team, he's played in the pro-style offense. I think he's got a better receiving skill set than people realize. Injuries and the fact he's played in offense that didn't throw the ball to tight ends a ton the past couple years – I think held him back a little bit, but I think he's got the ability to be a Will Disley style tight end. So maybe he's Disley's replacement waiting. Who knows what's going to play out there, but certainly a guy that I'm intrigued by in this really fun undrafted group that might not make the team now, but could be a player down the road that is a factor on offense for the Seattle Seahawks. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Coming up on our Blue Friday episode, we'll play a bit of this or that, some statistical oddities, which ones have a better chance of happening in 2023 for the Seahawks. We'll continue our 90-man countdown and much more. You won't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks.